Thanks for being here this evening. You're with Kevin Conover on Educate for Life Radio, and we are broadcasting from Southern California, K-Praise 1210 AM, uh, down here all over Southern California. And uh, I have a guest on our show this evening that that uh, was also on the show a while back talking about the Nephilim. And uh, if you've if you've uh, you've probably heard of it, Nephilim are one of the most popular uh, discussions that takes place in the Bible. And and uh, just because they're so mysterious and so interesting. But if you're interested in that, you can check out our, our former uh, radio show, our previous radio show where we talked about that. Um, Tim has actually written a book on the Nephilim. And, uh, and it explains everything goes into a great detail about the Nephilim and what they are. And, and, uh, his book is called fallen, the sons of God and the Nephilim. And, uh, Tim, thanks a lot for being on the program this evening. Hey, thanks, Kevin. It's good to be with you. Fantastic. And, um, you work as the content manager, um, with, uh, answers in Genesis, the, in the attractions division. Um, I think that's pretty cool that you have get to, um, lay out the attractions with the ark and all that's going on in answers in Genesis. That's got to be a pretty exciting job. Yeah, it really is. Um, it's, it's a dream job. I tell people I never get up on a Monday morning and say, Oh, it's Monday. I, <laughs> I don't have to, because I love what I do. I love the people that I work with. Uh, it's, it's really, uh, fantastic. And, um, you know, you mentioned the Nephilim and then you mentioned my job right there. I should probably throw in a disclaimer that answers in Genesis doesn't take an official position on the sons of God and the Nephilim. So what people would read in my book would be a, uh, would be representing my view and not necessarily those of the ministry, but, um, uh, yeah, I get to work with the design design team. I'm the writer, um, a writer. I've got an assistant who helps with that too. And uh, so that means what you read when you go through the arc or through any of the new exhibits at the museum, uh, that's what I'm responsible for, for developing and uh, writing. And I work with extremely talented, uh, designers and artists who make all the exhibits that you see in both places. They're, they're really incredible. Yeah, that is phenomenal. I, I, I mean, um, the, you know, when people visit the, the arc and everything, they talk about how, uh, just amazing it is, how well done it is. And, um, and it's also really interesting to me that you, you're looking into a lot of this stuff historically with Noah and the Ark and these sorts of things. And you're kind of filling in the, a lot of the gaps that, um, you know, when you read the text, you don't necessarily think about all the different things, but when you actually have to build a boat, right. Build the actual Ark, you have to think about a lot more details that you don't necessarily think about just reading the scripture. Yeah, we, you do. And one of the things we did, uh, about maybe six months after we opened, um, we put up a, a series of signs at the very beginning when you walk in, it's called artistic license. Um, because That's funny. <laughs> what, yeah. Well, what was it, what was happening is we decided to name the women on the ark and we, we know the Bible doesn't do that. And, and we were clear that we we're using artistic license. We, we put that in a few exhibits where, where that was more prevalent than others, but we would get about once a week, we'd get complaints that would be sent to me either through phone or through email um, you know, how dare you guys add to scripture by naming the women and, you know, those sorts of things, but they would never complain about how the people looked, what the animals looked like, um, yeah. uh, what, um, what the ship looked like, you know, what the ark looked like, everything that you see in there in a sense is artistic license. We know the size, we know the three decks, we know two of each kind and, you know, seven pairs of some had to be on board the ark as well. So we know certain details, but the the look and feel of it and, and all of those things that all of that is artistic license. And for some reason, naming the women was the thing that really upset a lot of people. And, uh, but we did that because we wanted people to think of them as real individuals. And yeah. uh, 
sometimes people say, well, why not just Mrs. Ham or Mrs. Noah? And like, because that wasn't their name. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> uh, we don't know what they were, but we gave them names uh, to, to help you realize that they were real people. Yeah, you know, and um, along those same lines, I think it's um, interesting. You um, you co-authored the Truth Chronicles, um, and you also wrote extensively about kind of the backstory of um, Noah and the Ark. Um, you have that series, I, I believe, Noah, Man of Destiny, Noah, Man of Resolve, and Noah, Man of God. Yeah, the um, Remnant trilogy. Yep. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how um, you know why you move forward with that and and uh, just what the experience was writing that because that that's really interesting. Yeah. So you mentioned the Truth Chronicles. That's a youth fiction series that uh, actually I just finished. Uh, we oh, had okay. done six books. Uh, we started back in 2010. Uh, 2009 is when we started writing them, but the first the first few were published in 2010. Then we did three more over the next few years, and then because of the Ark and because of this Noah series, I'm going to talk about. Those books got put on hold for a long time. And oh, okay. last year I finally returned to it. And now there's 10 of them in the series. Uh, we've got a lot of really positive feedback, uh, you know, time travel adventure for uh, for junior high students, um, junior high on up. And, uh, and so, those, yeah, are apolog- those are apologetics oriented. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that was the goal is you've got um, this young lady who's defending her faith to her, you know, with her friends who at the start of the series are unbelievers. I don't want to spoil it as far as what happens. Um, I can't say that they don't all remain that way. Um, But yeah, it really gets into apologetics, especially concerning Genesis 1 through 11. So from creation all the way up through Babel. And uh, and then also what it means to have a biblical worldview and how you can witness to your friends. And uh, there's even a study guide that goes along with it as well. Um, So one of the things we did with the Noah series, uh, the, the Remnant Trilogy, I wanted to have, uh, well, I was asked for one of our exhibits to write a fictional backstory for Noah and uh, how he could have acquired the skills that he obviously had Mm. based on the very few details we have in scripture. And so I came up with this storyline and uh, started sharing that with the people I was working with and with my supervisors. And and a lot of people really liked it. And somebody said, you should turn that into a novel. And I thought, I don't want to write a novel about Noah. Uh, Someday I'm going to meet him. Yeah. I don't want him to slap me or you know, <laughs> and what, say, what, what, what were you thinking? Yeah, where did you um, get that from? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was way smarter than that. What were you thinking? Um, and so I, I thought, you know, if there's a way that I can continually point people back to scripture and help them separate story from scripture, you know, my ideas, the things that we're filling in from God's inspired word. Um, and also cause them to think deeper about scripture, then I'll do it. And uh, so that's what we did throughout all three books in the series. Uh, it, take, it takes you on a, it's, it's a historical fiction, takes you from Noah as a young man setting out on his own up until the time of the flood. And you get to see uh, some of the, maybe what that world was, was like, uh, how it started to get as bad as it was, and uh, what it would be like to be a godly man in that society. And um yeah, there's a lot of adventure. Uh, there's some a lot of fun, especially in the first book, book and a half. It's uh, can be a little more lighthearted, but the world's got to go dark, and so yeah. we, it was tricky. How do you how do you de- display or how do you depict an extremely wicked world in a family friendly way? Mm. Uh, and that was a challenge we we had with that series, and it was a challenge we had with the arc as well. You know, uh, if you if you depict that pre flood world as too mild, then it makes God look cruel and unjust. But if you depict them in a, if it's overly, you know, if, if you're showing too much, then you're going to offend your supporters and people yeah. who come and it's not appropriate for families. And uh, so there's always that fine line to walk. And some people think we crossed it. Some people think you should have gone a lot farther. And uh, I 
think we, for the most part, I think we were on that line. Yeah. So what was, um, what was the most interesting part about writing that, that the backstory for Noah? Um, what are some of the things that you've, you found to be really uh, engaging for yourself? Yeah. Well, trying to figure out what he would have been like, you know, you, you hear this traditional view of Noah that he, you know, a lot of the different books that are written about him, you know, he, maybe he grew grapes, you know, before the flood and, and maybe he liked his drink a little too much. And it's like the Bible actually says he became a man of the soil. And that's after the flood. It doesn't say that's what he was doing beforehand. Mm. Uh, So the way we depicted him is that, you know, maybe he was already a shipbuilder. Because the way that God often does things is he prepares his people for the tasks that he's going to call them to, you know, mm-hmm. so that by the time God says, hey, come and do this, the person says, okay, I can do that. You've been preparing me for the last 30 years or whatever. I didn't know that's what I was going to do, but God knew. And so maybe Noah was already a shipbuilder. So when God says, Noah, build the ark, he, okay, how big? You know, yeah. <laughs> okay, well, that's really big. It's going to take a while. Um, so how so, long, how long did it take for Noah to build the ark? Yeah, we would say it's a maximum of 50 to 75 years. Now, there's some people who think, well, it was 120 because Genesis 6-3 says man's days will be 120 years. And even if that's a reference to the flood, which there are, that's not what the majority of scholars would say. They say that's a reduction of man's lifespan. But even even if that is a a count on the flood, it never says this is when Noah started building the ark or God told Noah this message at this time. Uh, The flood and the ark aren't mentioned for several more verses. And um, when God told Noah to build it, he said, it's going to be for you, your wife, your sons, and your son's wives with you. That's who that covenant is going to be made with. It sounds like the boys were already grown up and married when God said, Noah, build the ark. And since the oldest was born of Noah was 500, the flood came when he was 600. You've got that hundred year window for the boys to be born, grow up, get married. Then God say, Noah, build the ark. So if it takes 25 to 50 years for the boys to grow up and get married, subtract that from the hundred years and you got a 50 to 75 year window. And maybe it didn't even take that long. And I mean, if you think about building something out of wood for 50 years, you start way down on one end and you finally finish all the way down on the other end, you've probably got repairs to do down here because wood doesn't do a great job out in the elements. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't have your audio. Oh, sorry about that, Tim. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was, I was saying, uh, if, if you're just tuning in, uh, if you're listening and you're just tuning in, my guest this evening is Tim Chaffee, and uh, he's with AnswersInGenesis.org, but you can also check him out on um, his own apologetics um, website as well, uh, RisenMen.com. That's an apologetics ministry that he started, Risen Ministries, RisenMen.com, and he's got uh, quite a few different books that he's written on a, a variety of different apologetic subjects. Uh, but I think um, if you're a if you're a parent and you're looking for something to really engage your kids with, um, that they can also learn about God, but also find entertaining. Um, there's a, a great series that he has um, for youth on Noah, as well as um, uh, the Truth Chronicles, also. So you can check that out. Yeah, thank you. Well, the one thing I should mention about the Noah series is it's written in conjunction with the exhibits at the Ark. So oh, okay. every book has a has a section at the end called Encounter This. Because because I knew the props we were making. I knew the animals that were being sculpted. I knew all the things we were putting in the exhibit. So I wrote a lot of those into the story and it'll say, Hey, remember this thing that Noah does in chapter 12? Well, you can go see that on deck three in this exhibit. Oh, that's and it cool. kind of helps, <laughs> helps it come to life a little bit. All, a lot of the signs when we're talking about the, the, the family members, they're integrated with what's in the series. So if you yeah. read that book series before you go to the ark, you're going to see a lot of things that most people won't catch. That's great. 
And now um, along those same lines, you know, with the the ministry, um, building the ark was phenomenal. And you guys have had uh, millions of, of visitors through there t- checking it out. It's had such an incredible impact. And um, in my classes, I teach uh, 12th grade apologetics and I put up um, a little cartoon map that Answers in Genesis published quite a while ago. And it has the ark in it. But then um, off to the side, it has the Tower of Babel. And uh, my students always look at it and they're like, wait a second, they're going to build the Tower of Babel? And uh, I go, well, it, it looks like that might be on the horizon. And and they're always like, Mr. Conover, but do you think that's really a good idea? I mean, what's going to, is God going to change the languages again? Right. So it's pretty funny. But um, so tell us about that. What's, what's going on with um, the Tower of Babel with Answers in Genesis? Yeah. You know, it's interesting that your students are responding that way because we've, we've got quite a few responses like that as well, whether it's through Facebook or emails or phone calls. And uh, people are, are pretty, uh, some people are really concerned that we're doing that. Um, and it, it's, to me, it's interesting because that map you're talking about, that was done back in 2010. That has always been part of the, the plan yeah. for the entire yeah. park is that we would have a Babel attraction. And, and the reason for that is it's a huge part of the biblical worldview. When we talk about what we call the seven seas of history, beginning with you know this perfect creation and then corruption when man sins, you've got the catastrophe of the flood. And then the next one is confusion, which is the Babel event. And so we use that to talk about the origin of languages, the origin of the different people groups that we see around the world. And it's a big component of those seven seas. And so that's always been part of the plan. And I, I don't know if it's just people didn't remember that or maybe they weren't aware of that at the time. And uh, yeah, there are people who are concerned, like, well, this is something that God wasn't in favor of. So why would you be building something that God is not in favor of? Well, we've got exhibits on Babel in the Ark and also at the Creation Museum to explain, you know, the details I just mentioned. And there doesn't seem to be any concern there. Um, But for some reason, they think if you're building this tower, that's something that is, you know, not honoring God. But we're not building the Tower of Babel. We're building a modern structure that is meant to um, to teach people about that event and how man rebelled against God once again after mm. the flood, after God gave them an opportunity to restart. Um, and they didn't. They rebelled. And then God judged them, you know, through this confusion of language and and the other things that took place there. Uh, so, it's again, it's another picture of, of God's just judgment on on wicked humanity. And also, you know, Babel plays a huge role in the theology of scripture that a lot of people overlook. And what we, what we see at Pentecost is a reversal in many ways of Babel. Mm. You know, at, at Babel, God does this miracle of language where he, you know, confuses their language and suddenly you have all these languages at Pentecost, the disciples are speaking and everybody hears them in their own language. Um, at Babel, God, scatters the nations and he essentially says you know i'm done with you you look at deuteronomy 32 8 and he he kind of he disinherits the nations and uh, then he says but i'm going to start with one man and i'm going to you know bring my plan to fruition and of course he calls abram in the next chapter and then at pentecost was he say now take it out to all the nations you know the, mm. rather than just through that one man through that one nation israel now it's going to go out to the rest of the world yeah and yeah. so babel and pentecost uh really uh, kind of balance um, maybe that's not the right way, but are, are two ends of this, this narrative that you see in scripture. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I think it's really important not only to understand scripture rightly, but also to understand who we are uh, as human beings in this world today to take that back to Babel. 
Yeah, there's so much that's uh, incredibly interesting about that. And, um, you know, the, the, what we're dealing with with racism, especially recently with the um, CRT is in the schools now and it's causing all kinds of problems. Um, I was just reading about a, a teacher that was just recently fired for, uh, in, I believe, Indiana for um, uh, calling out the the school board and everybody else about that this was being taught in the schools and and we're seeing segregation it's bizarre it's like some sort of twilight zone uh situation yeah. where you're, you're you never i had never thought this was gonna we were gonna go backwards but now we're seeing literally segregated um uh playground times and we're seeing segregated uh you know whatever picnics and all kinds of crazy stuff that you're you're like, what is happening? Mm-hmm. Um, and the Tower of Babel really re- is relevant to that issue because people say, well, if God made, if everybody came from two people, um, then how did all the races develop and, and you know, what happened there? Um, can you give us a little bit of apologetics on that? Uh, you know, what is the biblical worldview there? And, and you know, really the scientific explanation for um, the races and how that originated from the Tower of Babel. Yeah. And just to clarify what we refer to when we're, when we're talking about CRT, critical race theory, um, the way that it is spun to a lot of people is, well, we're just teaching the history about race in America. No, that's not what critical race theory is. Mm-hmm. Critical race theory is what you talked about. It's segregation. It's ranking people. It's, it's judging people based on the color of their skin. If, if you're, if you look more like me, if your skin color, then you're obviously a racist or you obviously are favored or you, you have these advantages and people who, who have a darker skin shade that they're disadvantaged and therefore they deserve these things. You know, I'm privileged. They're not. And it, it's judging people based on the color of their skin, which has always been the definition of racism. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the way they, they pitch it is no, we're, you just don't want people to learn about the, the wrongs in society or the things that have happened. No, teach those things and teach the good as well. Teach the, you know, from, Growing up when I did in the 80s and 90s, racism was quickly becoming a thing of the past. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not saying every single place, that, no matter where you went in America, that it, that it never was there. That's not what I'm saying. But for the most part, it, it was in the rearview mirror, at least quite a ways. And we were taught to not see color. It's, it's not that you don't know that somebody has a different skin shade or something, but yeah. That, you don't treat them differently as a, you know, because of that's how I was raised. And, um, and I think that's the right way because we're all human. Yeah. There truly, there's only one race, the human race. And yet this critical race theory, what it really is, it's a, it's a, it's part of Marxism where you will, you stir up as much division and strife as possible. You want division. You don't want unity. And so you divide people by uh, gender, you divide people by religion, you divide people by quote unquote race, you divide people as, as much as you can so that they're constantly fighting and the government has to step in to control more and more and more. Yeah, this is if divide and conquer is really what what's happening. And uh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, think of how how much that contrasts with Martin Luther King Jr. You know, what, what did he say that, you know, that uh, it, um, black or white Protestant or Catholic would be able to join hands and sing in the words yeah, of yeah. Spirit free at last, uh, you know, that, yeah. that, that people would be judged by the content. He wanted his kids to be judged by the content of their character, not by the color of their skin. Yep. Amen to yeah. that. I mean, Absolutely. what a, what a radically different message that's being preached by CRT and groups like BLM 
uh, in total contrast to Martin Luther King Jr. and what what he was advocating. Yeah, actually, if, if I were to say those words today, somebody would somebody from CRT would brand me as a racist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just quoting Martin Luther King Jr. It's, yeah. it's remarkable. Um, so how does Babel uh, address that issue? Well, what we've always taught at Answers in Genesis is, and I think many creationist organizations have done this as well, um, we believe that all humanity goes back to Noah and his wife, and before that, back to Adam and Eve. Uh, you know, God didn't make a whole bunch of different people, you know, some of them light, some of them dark. He made Adam and Eve. And we believe that they were probably somewhat middle brown. And from that, you can get any one of the skin colors throughout the spectrum. And uh, when you get down to Noah and his wife, and then the, their sons and their wives, um, maybe there was more diversity by that point. Uh, you think that Noah, you think that the sons would be rather similar, mm-hmm. not necessarily, but they're, they're close, very closely related. Their genetics to, would be more similar, right. Than the, than the, their wives. Yeah, most likely. Yep. Yeah. And uh, unless they married three sisters or something. Yeah. <laughs> but, it's possible. Um, it's happened, right? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and um, yeah, so they would, be more similar. The diversity you see on the ark would probably be among the daughters-in-law for the most part. Um, but after the flood, you know, people stayed together for the most part. They, they were supposed to fill the earth and they refused. They gathered together. So you're going to continually have this mixing. So you're probably going to be for the most part close to middle brown. Hmm. You're not going to be getting, um, you know, really, really light and really, really dark until people separate and are, com- and are separated by uh, whether it's rivers or mountains or oceans or other things, and, and you just have um, a smaller group uh, continually mixing just with with themselves, uh, then you're not going to get this uh, broader swath of, of genetic diversity. So uh, now people- that's a, I have a question about that. Does Answers in Genesis have a position on, do they believe that that's, that was God's reasoning for wanting people to, you know, spread out um, and uh, what is there a is there an answer in scripture on that, or is that something that we're we're um, you know kind of uh, theoretical on? Well, I think that we can. I think there's certain assumptions that we can make that are pretty safe, and, and some things we can say theologically that I think are, are very are very safe. Uh, one of the reasons God wanted us to spread out, and you look back at what He told Adam: "Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it." Um, so He wanted man to rule over the earth uh, to. Uh, to study it, to learn about it, to, um, well, to rule over it. That's what he, he called us to do. It doesn't mean to, when he gave us dominion, it doesn't mean to dominate that you abuse things. We're supposed to use those things for our good and his glory. And uh, when, at the time of, of Babel, one of the things that happens is you see when people come together um, and they're congregating, evil tends to... Um, increase at a much faster rate and mm, interesting so one of the things that if if he says if um you know that he, he wanted them to scatter but they refused uh if they do this thing nothing will be withheld from them so he came down he confused their language which forced them to separate it was a way of curbing their wickedness oh which that's is, interesting which yeah which is what a lot of people think was happening in genesis 6 3 too where he says man's days will be 120 years rather than used to live to 900 something yeah and look at how wicked you became now because of that no just 120 years it's a way of curbing man's wickedness and ultimately that he's going to bring his messiah that bring the savior into this world 
Um, so people, yeah, in a sense, he is scattering them so they will fill the earth like he wanted uh, so that that wickedness is, um, is um, kind of mitigated. Yeah, yeah, mitigated. There's, yeah, there's yeah. a good one. Yep. Um, and so I think those are a couple of reasons. And uh, yeah, there's something else going on that a lot of times people don't realize in scripture uh, at that point. Deuteronomy 32, 8, I mentioned before, uh, 8 and 9. God disinherits the nations. He puts them under the control of other um of other beings i'll leave it at that for now and but then he says in verse nine israel is my heritage jacob is my allotted portion so in other words um you, i'm going to um, let the nations go off on their own and i'm not going to rule over them in a sense and i'm going to start my own out of this one guy and i'm still going to win <laughs> and that's what yeah. happens yeah and so, um, so put the nations under the, the power of um, like spiritual forces, e- evil spiritual forces. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, so I wanted to also ask you about that, where um, he says, because this is an interesting phrase where in some versions of the Bible, it says um, nothing, nothing that they uh, do will be impossible for them. Mm-hmm. Or um, you, you phrased it um, will be withheld from them. Um, can you, can you break that down for us theologically? What, what's going on there? Why is God say, um, cause it almost in, in one sense, I had a student say to me, well, Mr. Conover, isn't that a good thing? I mean, they, they could do anything. I mean, just, you know, teamwork, we, we can do anything. Right. And, uh, so, so, um, what, what can you explain that to us? Yeah. If man's intentions were good, that would be a good thing. Um, mm-hmm. but man's intentions are not good. And if what they're trying to do is, is overthrow God's rule or to, you know, to try to stop his plan from coming to fruition, um, no, that's not a good thing. You know, if not that man is powerful enough to stop God from what he's doing, but if, you know, somehow man was able, well, for example, if um, later on in scripture, during the years of the divided kingdom, when, uh, is it baby Joash? is hidden by Jehoiada's mm-hmm. wife uh, mm-hmm. from Athaliah, the evil queen. If, if, jo- jo- if Jehoiada's wife did not hide that little baby Joash and Athaliah killed Joash as well as all the rest of the brothers, mm. Jesus can't come as a descendant of David. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so that messianic line gets down to just this one king. And mm. if it's not for that, or the kingly line gets down to just one, one baby boy. And if it wasn't for that action, then then this promise that he'd be a descendant of David is not going to come to pass. Um, yeah. That's uh, that's one of the things I've, I've always thought is that, um, you know, one of the, the ways the devil I think thinks he can win is by making God out to be a liar. Mm-hmm. And so if he can thwart prophecy, the God, the promises of God for the future, then he figures that I've proven your, your word is false. And so he's, he's all over the place trying to uh, figure out what God is doing. And at the same time, trying to stop that from happening. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, what other chance does he have? He can't overpower him. He, yeah. And um, yeah, so even if he, what would happen if if somehow he made it so God did lie, which he won't. I mean, he can't yeah, because God yeah. can't lie, yeah. but he keeps trying. And yep. so I think he's going to take as many of us with him as he can. Yeah, and, exactly. So um, uh, one other thing I thought was really interesting, um, and I, uh, you may or may not know the answer to this, but 
I believe one of the flood stories I was reading about actually references um, the Tower of Babel. It's um, it might be the Aztec legend. I can't remember which one it is, but it it specifically says that they wanted to build the tower so that they would not, if a flood came again, that that they wouldn't die, that it would be tall enough that they could go to the top of it and escape the waters. Mm-hmm. Um, is that have you heard that? Yeah, I've heard that there there are certain uh, there are several groups that that think that's why the people were building this tower. Um, I don't think that's why they were doing it, but I can see how as these legends get handed down year after generation after generation, and you get these mm-hmm. little distortions, or you get a a melding of them. So you have yeah. flood legends all over the place. You have creation myths that are very similar. You know, man being made from the dust of the ground. Yeah, uh, the, the wind coming along making them alive, or a great spirit you know breathing into them. Um, you have the reason man dies or the man, the reason man is sinful now has something to do with a tree and, or a serpent. You find mm. that all over the globe. Yeah. You have the, the flood legends and you, and in many places you have these Babel legends. So I can see how those could kind of get fused together. Mm. Um, and so maybe there's a, that, that confusion over confusion with Babel and, and with yeah. the flood itself, um, no pun intended. Right. But I don't think that's what they were doing. I think what was probably going on there, it talks about whose top is in the heavens, you know, building this tower. They want to make a name for themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a lot of people who think that what they were doing, what the top had to do, it was something with, um, uh, you could say false worship, worship of false gods or something that they, it was a religious thing uh, that was not, um, not what, not worshiping the true God. If you look at the so many cultures around the world, uh, especially around the Middle East, you have the people that, with this idea that they would meet their God or gods on the mountains or their gods dwelt on the mountains. Mm, and interesting. So, so you have, you know, the Greeks or the Olympic with uh, the Olympian gods is probably the most famous. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then you also have the Canaanites, uh, you know, thought that uh, Baal was on top of a mountain. You, you know, the Ugaritic people thought that El was on top of one of the mountains. You had all these different ideas all around Israel. Um, so if you don't have a mountain in your region, what do you do? You build one. And if you look at the names of a lot of those different temple structures or uh, some of, you know, ziggurats throughout the Middle East, it's a lot of times it's like this uh, stairway between heaven and earth and mm. you know, this connection point where they're going to meet with their, with their deity. And uh, I think, you know, God uses that in a way to speak to the Israelites. Where does he meet Moses? Um, yeah top of a mountain. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, a while back, uh, maybe a year or so ago, maybe a little more, I had on, um, Doug Petrovich, uh, archeologist, um, maybe you've heard his name. And, um, he was actually saying that he, he, he thought that he knew where the tower of Babel actually was. Um, does answers in Genesis have a particular view on, uh, you know, it, it, whether that there, there are remnants of that left over, um, or, or where it would have might've been. Yeah. I think our position is that at this point, we don't know, mm-hmm. uh, it, it would be nice to, to find it or, you know, to figure it out. Um, I know I've met, um, Doug Petrovich, uh, once before he was at the creation museum for, um, I think it was the premiere of is Genesis history that DVD mm-hmm. that he was part of. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I've talked to him for a little bit afterwards, but I think one of the disagreements we would have with his position, I think his position on where Babel was is dependent upon people. A, a lot of people already being scattered. Mm. 
at the time of the Babel event. And I think that would make, a, make us uncomfortable because it, um, the language in Genesis 11 seems to strongly imply all the people were still together. They had yeah. not scattered. And so I, uh, I don't know that his view does, uh, does the best job with the text of what it's saying there. Uh, you know, mm. I appreciate people trying to figure out where it was. Sure. And I think that would be great to, to, if somebody were to discover that, but I, I don't know if we know at this point, but yeah, keep coming up with different ideas and, and keep yeah. you know, studying keep. and trying to figure it out. Yeah. And um, when you were, when you were doing the backstory for Noah and these sorts of things, um, I, I, I know it's one of your, one, one of the guys that was, I know he was at answers in Genesis for a while. He wrote a book on, I believe um, pre-flood history and I believe he references the book of Jasher. Um, have you, are you familiar with this at all? Um, um, I'm not sure who you're talking about. Um, you know, I wish I could remember his name offhand, but I can't. But I just, I found it very interesting because the book of Jasher is mentioned multiple times in the Bible. Yeah, um, it's mentioned in uh, what, Joshua and in first or second Samuel, second Samuel, one, yeah. one of them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and um, do you, do you have a view on that? What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, as far as we know, you know, you can go on Amazon today and you can type in Book of Jasher and you can order this this book, but that is not the one being referred to in scripture. It is almost certainly like a 18th century forgery where somebody wrote that to make it seem like this is what the, the yeah. Bible was referring to. Uh, there are some people who think that it goes back to around the 8th or 9th century, that the, maybe there was a Hebrew version of it, hmm. that, that a Jewish person had done that at some point, and then that got translated uh, but I, I think the stronger arguments are for the much later date, you know, just maybe it's a couple hundred years ago. Uh, mm. So it's not what you find in scripture, but there, there was a book of Jasher. Uh, I just don't think that we have it. And I don't know that it would have been something that was pre-flood. There's um, book of Jubilee speaks of the pre-flood world, mm. but that's an intertestamental book. Uh, book of Enoch speaks of the pre-flood world, but that's also an intertestamental book. Um, and so I don't know that we have anything that, that survived the flood in terms yeah. of writing. And mm. yeah, that's interesting. There's so much there to, to speculate about and to, mm -hmm. to research. Um, do you have, um, what kind of research are you going to, I know for the, for building the ark, there was a tremendous amount of research done on the biology, you know, animals and what animals would have existed that, that have gone extinct now. And, what would the different species have been like and these sorts of things. Yeah, which ones belong in the same kind together, all of yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, all of that sort of thing. Um, are you going to have to do research like that for the Tower of Babel or is that this this uh, not take as much research? Uh, well, it does take a lot of research, even with the animals and with the plants, because what um, when did the Babel event occur um, in terms of the uh, sedimentary layers that we find? you know, how long after the, the flood boundary and what plants do we find in that level and what animals do we find in that region of the world in that, in that, you know, layering. Yeah. So that if we're going to depict animals and plants in the attraction, well, we want it to be as uh, accurate as, as possible, according to, you know, the, the model that we use. Um, so it takes research in that way. Um, thankfully, my assistant likes doing that kind of thing. He loves sticking his nose in fossil books all day long. So That's great. <laughs> have at it. That every, would every, me to everybody tears. needs one of those guys. 
Yeah, he loves it. So he does a great job. That guy knows more about animal kinds than anybody I've ever met. Uh, yeah. because that's what he did for several years. It's that's just, awesome. Study that all the time. Um, uh, so it takes a lot of research that way. It's going to take a um, you know some genetics research, which the research for the most part has already been done by geneticists and you know people who understand those things. But for me to be able to write the things I need to write, I've got to talk to them and figure out how we can bring that down to a level that I can understand because if I can understand it, then other people can understand. Yeah. <laughs> um, right. And so it takes research that way. Of course, there's biblical research as well. One of the things we've been doing uh, for the last several months now is figuring out, uh, you know, thinking through things that I think most people have never considered how many people would have been alive at the time mm. of the Babel event. Um, that's re- that's a really interesting one. Yeah, for sure. Right. If you think of the pictures you've seen, you've seen this tower that's just huge that, you know, it's all all the way up into the sky. But if it's happening when Usher placed it, which I don't think that it was, but if it's, you know, just just over 100 years after the flood, by normal population growth numbers, you only get about 20 to 30 people. Now, I I think that you'd have more than I think initially you'd have with those the three families, Noah's sons and their wives, um, that each of them would have multiple kids in, in scripture. Uh, I think it lists their sons at, at five, five and seven or something. Um, and then assuming just as many girls, that population is going to grow quicker than the normal growth rate. But even if you use a very high growth rate, you only have about 1500 to 2000 people Wow! Uh, within that first hundred to 150 years. How big of a structure can you build? And remember, if it's a ziggurat like structure, which a lot of people think it was, or it was something similar to that, these are solid. They're not hollow like a castle they're they're making these bricks and they're baking them thoroughly and they're baked out in the sun so how long does it take to do that and uh, so we've had people doing the research on that going out and making them and figuring it out we've had um you know not only these population studies we've had um uh, how far would they have to travel to get water to help make these bricks to do every single thing you can think of we've plotted into this spreadsheet that you can go in and change variables and it'll tell you how many bricks are being made and how if you make a structure this big how many bricks do you need and if you make one wow. this big, how many? so we're going through all of those things to try to give make it as feasible as as we can possibly understand it of course yeah. there's still some guesswork because the bible doesn't tell us how big it was like it does tell us the size of the ark it doesn't tell us the size of the tower now mm. if you're living in that pre-flood world and you haven't seen the ark uh, the biggest building you've seen is probably a tent or a mm. one or two story home. So if you build something that's 40 feet tall, that's going to feel like it. Yeah. yeah it's going to feel like it's up <laughs> to the heavens. In fact, that same wording uh, up to the, up to the, to the heavens whose top is in the heavens, that similar or very same wording is used in the, the land of Canaan. Some of the cities, their walls were up to the heavens. Well, the walls were only 25 to 30 feet or so. <laughs> yeah. um, so I don't know that. That's we have funny because. People are going to come to the, they're going to come to the ark exhibit, you know, and everybody's blown away by the size. They're like, whoa, this is huge. And then they're going to go over to the tower of Babel and they're going to be like, whoa, wait, I thought it was way bigger. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's, we're going to build ours more than 30 feet. It does. Yeah. <laughs> it, it has to, it, it is going to be an attraction. It does have to house the exhibit, you know, the, the, um, what we're planning to do there. And, um, We've been are, you guys, are, you, are you guys ever going to bring in uh, roller coasters? You're going to have it. A- well, it's not going to be a roller coaster. What we're looking at for this is what's called the dark ride. Um, I think oh. I can announce that. I think we've, I think we've oh. said that. Oh, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have now. Spoiler. Um, yeah, I know that we've announced that that's what we're looking at. It's not a done deal at this point, but that's what we've been looking at. So it would be um, something where you get into a 
car, a vehicle with you know six or seven people, and that would move you through uh, different environments, different scenes, different um, you know maybe a ten to fifteen minute ride um, where you're learning about the history of Babel, you're learning about the impact of it, you're learning uh, what it means that we're made of one blood and that mm. we all go back to Adam and Eve, and ultimately the the solution to all of these different problems that we see in our world. Uh, whether it is racism, which is, you know, it's a, a form of prejudice, it's a form of pride. It extends yeah. from pride that I'm better than this person. All of those things are ultimately a result of sin. And the solution to all of that is the Lord Jesus Christ and his sacrifice mm. on the cross and his resurrection from the grave. Amen. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, that's really exciting. Um, do you guys have a time frame yet as far as like, do you have, do you have a, a, a guesstimate on uh, when that might happen? Um, I, I don't know if we have a, an official date because we haven't done the fundraising for it yet. I think we begin officially fundraising sometime next year. Mm. Um, I think sometime in the first half of next year is when that will, I don't, again, this, I don't think this is set in stone yet, but sure. I think that's when we're going to plan to start fundraising for that. And I think from that time, it's at least a three year build, uh, because we got to build the, the structure. You got to build the if it's going to be this ride system, you got to be able to put that in there. You got to do the theming, you got to do the exhibits. And uh, so it's, I think it's a three year, at least three years out from when we do that. Are there any other, um, are there any other big kind of, um, you know, attractions in, in that sense that uh, answers that Genesis has in, in uh, on the horizon uh, for adding to the park? Yeah, actually, one of the things we're going to probably have before Babel is a, a large, uh, huge model of first century Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. Um, the, we're, we're planning on doing that in the next couple of years, over the next couple of years, and uh, praying that Israel will open up its borders again so that some of us can go over there and do some research. Which yeah. Would be, that would just be a shame, you know, to have to do that for work. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> I know uh, what so a great, I can see why you like, love your job so much. That's pretty great. <laughs> yeah. That's one of the reasons. Um, it, yeah. It would be fantastic to do that. But um, yeah, we want to build a model of Jerusalem from about 33 AD, you know, around the time of Jesus's crucifixion, you know, there's debate 30 or 33 AD, but either way, that's what the city would have looked like. There's a huge model over in Jerusalem at the Israel museum. It used to be in the King David hotel and, hmm. That's bigger than what we're going to be building. That's an outdoor one now. And that was from representing Jerusalem in AD 70, where it had expanded and had another wall on, on the northwest side uh, that we won't be depicting that part of it because 40 years earlier, it was it was smaller than that. But it will still be pretty impressive. That's one thing. Um, some of the plans um, that we had initially unveiled, you know, with the entire park being opened is we wanted to do like an Old Testament history where you're moving through uh, from Abraham up to David, maybe even having like the temple and then um, m- moving from the temple on to up to the first century. We want to have like a first century village next to the the uh, model of Jerusalem and really move people up through the entire uh, history of scripture. Yeah, it's it's fantastic. It's amazing how, um, you know, people always say, you know, when you when you do go to Israel, you visit Israel, everything comes alive, you see things in a whole different way. And mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, you're really doing the same thing. You're providing that uh, opportunity to, you know, uh, walk through to see to hear and just to really uh, get a whole new perspective on uh, biblical truth. So it's really cool. Yeah, that's one of the things we hear from uh, guests at the Ark Encounter a lot is they, they never imagine what it would have been like 
to live on the ark. And so when they walk through the living quarters that they think could have really been like this, well, well, we're not sure, but um, you know, if you go in there, they're, they're pretty nice. And people are surprised at it because I think we often just think, well, they found a place in the hay to, to, yeah, lay down to, sleep. <laughs> to lie but, down. <laughs> yeah. But if that's their, if they're bringing all of their belongings from before the flood, or at least a lot of the ones they want to keep, yeah. why not have something nice? Maybe they lived on the ark for a couple of years prior to the flood while they were still building it. Maybe they had an area, you know, why walk really far every morning if they had yeah it was probably more like a more like a cruise boat yeah (laughs) (laughs) maybe not quite like that but (laughs) um but then a lot of times people remark about you know how do they get rid rid of the the waste and how do they get fresh air and fresh water and sunlight and all and we have an exhibit that goes through that and people are they think i never thought of those things before well we had to think through all of that as far as how could they have done that? And we want to do the same thing with Babel or any exhibit that we work on. Yeah. My students always say, um, you know, how, how could he have been smart enough to, to build a boat that big and everything? And I'm like, the guy had, the guy had uh, 600 years, you know, <laughs> to yeah. accumulate knowledge. He was probably, he probably could do everything, you know, he could speak. Well, there were not m- multiple languages, but he, <laughs> you know, whatever there was to do, he, he could do it, you know? So that's pretty cool. Yeah, that, that's well, that was one of the reasons why in the backstory I wrote that we had him as a shipbuilder. Um, you know, one of the, the other reason for that that I liked is the um, if you think of how Jesus is foreshadowed in the Old Testament in some ways, you know, this the you know, uh, Moses is is similar to Jesus in certain ways. You know, God tells Moses he'll raise up a prophet like himself, but mm-hmm. you know, Moses was in the wilderness for 40 years. Well, Jesus is going to be in the for- wilderness for 40 days, so there's this this somewhat of a parallel that people can make this connection and you see the same thing with david and and jesus and a lot of the key figures in the old testament foreshadowed jesus in some way well what about noah yeah but maybe the fact that he was a woodworker uh maybe that's maybe that's what it is um yeah so that's one of the reasons i like the shipbuilder idea is that in that way then he would foreshadow the son of the carpenter oh, i love it well, Tim, we're, we're just about out of time here. If you've been listening, my my guest is Tim Chaffee, and he is with Answers in Genesis. If you haven't been out to the ARC exhibit, uh, it's phenomenal. Um, it's in Kentucky, and um, you know it just brings the Bible alive, brings uh, Genesis alive for you, and really answers a lot of the questions that people have about, you know, where did the water come from? Where did the water go? You know, how did the water cover all the mountains? You know, and every other question that we're that, that people have. And, you know, it's very relevant when it comes to things like race and, and racism and, and you want to be able to have those answers um, so that you can be a light to the people around you and begin to crack the door of their heart. Maybe they haven't considered these things and they start to hear it and they go, you know what, Hey, you know what, this is, this makes sense when they find out that there are flood stories all over the earth, when they find out um, that there are stories about creation in, in all the different cultures around the world, where did they all come from? Why is it that there are no languages that are older than 6,000 years, right? Why, why do we have no calendars that are older than 6,000 years? Um, and as you begin to ask those questions, people begin to go, whoa, wait a second. And they start to reconsider their views about the Bible. And, and that'll give them the opportunity to know Jesus Christ. So um, check it out. You can also check out um, Tim's website, uh, risenmen.com. If you want to learn more about Tim and the books that he's written, he's written quite a few different books on all kinds of things. If you're interested in the Nephilim, uh, there's not too many people that know more than that, uh, more than Tim on that subject. So that's another one you can check out. You guys know my website, educateforlife.org. I've got all kinds of resources on there for your junior high and high school students, apologetics classes and curriculum. And uh, we're building an elementary curriculum. So uh, 2022, 
2022, we are putting together a new apologetics curriculum for kids. And so um, if you want to check that out and what we're developing, uh, that'd be wonderful also. And we'll be back again next week. Uh, Tim, thanks again for being here. It's been a real big blessing to have you and um, uh, really glad that you're doing what you're doing. So thank you. Uh, uh, you're very welcome, Kevin. Thanks for having me on. I am just extremely blessed to to do what I do and then to get to talk about what I do. Obviously, I think you can tell I enjoy it. And uh, yeah, absolutely. That's been very, very good to me. Uh, praise God. And um, And we'll probably have you on again sometime in the future to talk about when when things start developing more too so thank you so much that'd be great okay goodbye everyone we'll see you next time take care